Hi, welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Today we get to talk about why white women should care. Can't wait to talk about this. This should be good because people have very different reactions to the title of the podcast, right? That's Dear White Women. And I've seen a lot of different reactions. How about you? Yeah, I think it ranges from super excited right away to sort of a blank stare to a lifted eyebrow. I mean, you name it, sort of the whole gamut. Right. Some defensive, some excitement, mm-hmm. some questioning, like, why? What does this mean? And what would it mean if this podcast was actually meant for me to listen to? So I'm really curious about, you know, people who are listening right now, what was their reaction? I wonder what they felt like. But For me, the reason I was excited when we came up with this name for the podcast was because I feel like it's ideal to talk with women. I mean, obviously, you and I are speaking together, but so I'm a mother. A lot of us as women have a position of influence in the household. We raise our kids. And so we get, at least for me, I really spearhead a lot of the conversations we have in the home and raising awareness for the kids. I feel like by reaching women, we have the potential to influence not just our generation, but the generation that's coming up next And so I feel like women have this power to be curious and learn because we can share it with our children. And I know for communication, female communication is a lot about sharing and creating a bond. I think women are the ones, broadly speaking, through some research, you know, shown to be the ones who form connection and similarities and communities. And so when we communicate, we want to be heard and supported and understood. We like being listened to. And so I think we also listen to others as well. We talk and process just like we're doing in the podcast together here. So I think through that, we have such a great target audience because we can encourage people to have these very conversations with the other women in their lives. Yeah. And I think if you think about how women interact, just like you talked about, we do a lot of conversing, even if it's in short bursts or, you know, that's often how we interact with other women. So just to even be able to have conversations like this is amazing. Totally. And I think a lot of women, I mean, I know there are male allies in the world of feminism and in supporting women, but I think we're in it together. I mean, there's so much diversity within the female population, for sure. But I think it's important to be talking to women with women about stuff that involves us women. And I think today we can talk a little bit about the systems that we operate in and what the women's movement have stood for traditionally and where we think it might need to go from here, right? Completely. I think that one of the books that you and I, Sarah, have been reading and talking about really sort of hits on this and talks about this in depth. And I don't know if you want to start talking about that book, White Fragility. Yeah. Oh, I totally would love to talk about it. And I hope one day we get to do a book club around this with people. But Oh, that'd be amazing. Right? The (laughs) book was fascinating. It was also really interesting pulling it up as I was traveling on some airplanes and reading it and being like, I wonder what people think around (laughs) me that I'm reading this book called White Fragility. But one of the biggest things that I took away from the book that really jumped out at me was that when we talk about racism, we're talking about the system. We're not talking about individuals or like, you know, so many people are like, well, I'm not racist, so I don't need to talk about race. But it's about the system and the history that has come before us that has informed the institutions and the government and the way we grow up. And I think there's got to be a contrast between the system and individuals, right? Individual acts like we can commit. Is it the right phrase? I don't know. We commit acts of discrimination or we may have prejudice. Those are the things that I as an individual may do. 
But racism, as we're talking about it, certainly, I think we're in alignment with the author of the book, White Fragility. Racism and the stuff we're talking about is the institutions and just becoming more aware of the system that we operate in. Because unless we name the system, we're not aware of it, right? In the United States, we are very capitalistic. But unless you really look at companies with the lens of, oh, they're really out to just make money, you're not aware of people's motivations, or we are so strongly brought up in the United States with this idea of meritocracy and the individual power to create difference in our lives. But if we don't look at the systems and the different ways that we all grow up, it doesn't matter how much merit each individual has if we have different starting points. So I guess I like that we're naming that racism, that system in this country and looking at the fact that it was created by and for white people. Yeah, I think that is such an important distinction because that really helps to look at some of the different conversations that we've had or we've heard where people tend to gloss over those systems and look at individual acts. But in reality, those systems and the pervasiveness of those systems, even if we think that we might be past it, are are still in existence in a very real way. And we're definitely going to be unpacking that more going forward. Right. Because we talked about it in a past episode. But just again, to reiterate those dates, we had slavery in this country for almost 250 years. We had segregation for 90 years. And we've been in official sort of post-segregation quotes (laughs) again, but for only Mm -hmm. 65 years. So it's only been 65 years. Of course, we haven't undone the systems that were put in place for, you know, over 300 years. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important to keep acknowledging that and keeping that concept in the forefront of our conversations, because even conversations on a national level, when you take that knowledge out of it, it really glosses over what is happening here. For example, Katrina Pearson, an advisor to President Trump's 2020 campaign, had deflected a question about diversity in the White House in early March by asking how many black people served in the Lincoln administration. (laughs) And when I heard this, you know, A, I texted you immediately, but B, my jaw was like on the ground because I was like, I don't understand. But then I did because there is a disconnect in our history and our understanding of race in this country. And I think that that took Al Sharp unaware when she said that to him and said, quote, I'm not going to participate in the attempt to make this all about race. It is ridiculous how many black people were in Abraham Lincoln's West Wing when asked how many people of color were on President Trump's 2020 campaign or in the White House. And I think that that (laughs) deflection and that defensiveness is really telling. And that's something that you know, Sarah, you and I have discussed as something we need to acknowledge and sit with and address and then so that we can actually move past that so we're not in conversations And like you, my historian friend, can you <laughs> be very clear? Why is it ridiculous that she said that? Because what, what process because, did Abe Lincoln lead? Right. So if you remember, you know, U.S. history in schools, Abraham Lincoln was really the one who was the president during the Civil War. And really, he, you know, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Like he was really working. And it's not obviously as simple as that to deal with the institution of slavery in the United States. So given that historical context, that remark is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Let's call it what it is. But I think if you don't have that history, it's real easy to make a comment like that. And I think that's the education piece that we're really working on here. Totally. Um, Because something else that was really 
striking to me is, you know, remember in school, we learned about the women's movement and specifically women working for the right to vote. And, you know, when I think back to that time in school, I think about the way we were taught was like it was really about female empowerment, you know, and we were not allowed to vote and women took this into their own hands and really pushed for women to vote. But when you think about that and what really happened, you know, in doing some research for this episode, like it really became clear that Susan B. Anthony and other white women who were really at the forefront because it was white women who were pushing for the vote were really about women before black people. So that's great if you're a white woman, but not as great if you're a black woman or really at that time when you were a person of color, that was the color you were black because you weren't going to get the vote because you were going to be identified by race first, as opposed to being a woman first. And so that to me was really eye-opening to think about. And I mean, I know this is such a simplistic visual, but I remember watching the movie Mary Poppins growing up and like Mrs. I've just blanked on her name, but like the woman of the house who was fighting, she was a suffragette, but it was all white women, wasn't it? Like, I feel like that's the visual I have of the suffragettes that were portrayed in that original movie of Mary Poppins. Yeah, you're totally right. And thinking back to the visual of that, that's so true. And I think that that is a really good reminder and example of if we're not intentionally including women of color, then really feminism is excluding everyone but white women. This is really about being white more than being women. Right. Well, there's that quote from an article that we had found that it said, like, if there is not the intentional and action-based inclusion of women of color, then feminism is simply white supremacy in heels. It's a little shocking to think about it that way, but I think that's really telling. Yeah, I agree. This next part, though, this is where I'm like, this drives me crazy. The voting stats (laughs) for the 2016 election. I know, I know. This, like, from the first time I heard this, just was, I don't know about you, but I felt so many emotions. Like, I was upset. I was upset on a whole host of levels, but I was like, honestly disappointed. And just between the outrage and the disappointment, I don't know, I sort of, you know, went between the two. But I think that the statistic that 53% of white women voted for President Trump is something that was jarring and shocking and took a while for a lot of us to really sit with and conceptualize. I think because, and for me and for you, one of the things that came up in the election was really in leading up to the election was his history of disrespecting women. And so it was so hard for me to understand when you have a man who has just an extreme history. And it's not just one comment. We found a great complete list of basically every offensive comment. I can post that on our social media stuff, actually, if people really want to feel bad for a moment. We'll just just hit the highlights for a second. I mean, for example, in 1991, he called women beautiful pieces of ass. He said, you need to treat women like shit. He's bragged about his daughter's figure and made comments that sound really close to incest jokes. He's called breastfeeding disgusting. He's blamed military sexual assault on the fact that there are women in the military, so they are cohabitating. So that's just a natural byproduct of that. I think we're all familiar with the most famous, 
you know, the pussy grabbing video with Billy Bush. I think, you know, that one garnered attention for so long and still 53% of white women voted for him. Yeah, they overlooked it. Like, what is more important than fundamental respect of half of the population? And how can you be like, ah, you know what, he's going to do whatever he can to us, but we'll support him anyway. Like, what does that say about women and in particular, the white women that were willing to overlook such character, such like, oh, such offensiveness to our entire gender, right? I mean, you and I talked about it, but if it had been a different issue, if President Trump had said, you know, we were going to be burning crosses on someone's lawn and said really nasty things against black people, would the majority of black people have voted for him? I mean, I can't speak for anybody, but like, I don't know, would would other minority groups, would other groups vote so overwhelmingly if they were put down and disrespected and taken advantage of and shut down so much? Women overlooked it. And it wasn't, yeah, and it wasn't hidden. That's the thing. Like, he was so open about it. And I understand that there was a lot of research around, you know, people saying and women saying and white women saying that they voted for him for a specific reason. But when you have someone tell you exactly how he feels about a group of people that is actually, you know, the majority in this country, like that is shocking, shocking. It is shocking. You know, for me, character is so important on a personal level. I really find it difficult to overlook because I think it informs people the way of thinking. It would inform policy. It would inform so much, right? And that led to, I mean, Supreme Court. Yeah. October was just a dark period for me, you know, with the Kavanaugh hearings and Christine Blasey Ford. And I couldn't believe it. Like, you know, we had very different reactions to the entire process and me being an attorney. And like, I was like glued to it and I could not believe. But there was like a tiny, sad part of me and very frustrated part of me that could believe that he was going to get confirmed. And it was like an example of everything that I felt about white men and privilege and treatment of women all sort of rolled into one package. And in the guise of someone who is going to be able to make serious legal decisions that will affect generations of Americans. Totally. But it was interesting because my reaction was totally opposite. I have to admit that I buried my head in the sand. Like, intuitively and everything in my body was like, no, I don't want him. But I felt powerless. And I felt like if I was going to be watching all the details and if I was going to be learning more about it, there was nothing I could do anyway. And I think that's where I really felt like I buried my head in the sand. I knew I didn't want him on because same thing, like he's now on the Supreme Court for life. There's a lot of stuff regarding women's choice about what we do with our bodies or so many other issues, of course, Yeah, that might get affected by his presence now there, but I felt like I couldn't do anything. Yeah, I think it's, you know, how we address issues like that is really different, even though we feel very similar and how we address the Kavanaugh issue, because I wore all black, like I went to my, you know, son's soccer game in the sun. And you know, it's the Bay Area, it's hot in early October, in all black, because I was basically in mourning for what was happening. And I would engage like random people in conversation about it. And to varying reactions. But yeah, I also felt powerless, but I felt like 
I had to express something about that or I was going to lose my mind. That's interesting, right? I mean, it's awful to feel powerless. And I know, I think that's why having these kind of conversations and taking action or or being aware of how our actions on a day-to-day basis can still affect change in society are important to still have because they can shift the tide and we can make changes sort of one conversation at a time, even just with how we think so that, I don't know, I feel like we need to feel like we have some control or influence in shaping society and shaping ultimately, like hopefully by making small changes on our day to day, it filters back up through the system. And we don't wind up with situations like this, where we feel helpless and for things that really, really matter to us. Yeah, completely. And I think going back into, you know, why white women should care about this and why we called this podcast Dear White Women is because we have the opportunity through understanding our history, through being conscious of the systems that, you know, have benefited white women by learning about how we can be allies to women of color and educating ourselves. We have the ability to make changes in the future so that we don't feel powerless anymore, so that we have control over our role and manifest as women. I think, you know, one of the things that we're going to look into, you know, in future episodes, so you should definitely keep listening, is intersectionality and intersectional feminism. Because what we talked about at the start about how the history of women's right to vote in this country was largely a history of white women's right to vote. Intersectional feminism really addresses that gap between the experience of white women and the experience of women of color. It looks at that disparate treatment of the white female experience and acknowledges that it's not the experience of all women. You know, and recently I read an article about Stacey Abrams, who, you know, came into like all of the news media about when she ran a very close race for governor of Georgia. And I think, you know, a lot of us have a lot of feelings about that race in particular. But the article was about how she had been part of a Girl Scout, a lot of other stuff. But when she was 12, she had been part of a Girl Scout troop in Mississippi, where she grew up, and she was the only black scout in that troop. And they were all supposed to go to Arizona for a conference. And she was going to go and, you know, represent her troop with some other people. And she gets to the airport when they have all made these plans to go and everyone else had changed their plans because they didn't want her to go. And so her parents realized this and were like, well, do you want to still go? And she had never flown before. She was like, yeah, I still want to go. So she went anyway. But that experience, can you imagine being 12, showing up at the airport, your first trip, and you realize they left you behind because they didn't want you to go because you were black? That's outward discrimination. And I mean, we'll talk about that and why the women of color experience is very different and distinct than the white female experience. But there are tinier forms of discrimination. And we're going to talk about that, too. And my boys have been reading this book about how They like dinosaurs, so this is going to be a dinosaur example, but (laughs) how Sarah's giving me this look, you guys can't see it. It's like, what is she talking about? How small raptors can take down a T-Rex because they jump on the T-Rex and cut the T-Rex many, many times. They're tiny little cuts, but the totality of those cuts takes that T-Rex down. And similarly, we have this in forms of discrimination that are less overt, much smaller. They're called microaggressions. And, you know, we'll talk about this in a later episode, too. But these are the types of tiny things that little things, one comment, one sentence that over time can really impact people. 
And research has shown that this form of implicit bias, and we'll talk more about that later, can be addressed as early as first grade. So imagine if you're cognizant of what you say and how you say it and how the impact that it has on people and you know a little bit about why, maybe not a lot about why at age six or seven, but how your behavior and how you may be able to change those systems can impact others from a young age. Yeah, we'll talk about looking out for each other's mental health. And we talk about how, you know, going back to we rise by lifting others, like we will do better as a family, as a community, as, you know, states and nations, if we can support one another and maximize health, basically mental health and physical health. So that really does make a difference. Yeah, there's a lot of research about life expectancies being different for people of color because of as a direct correlation to having to deal with not only overt discrimination, but microaggressions. So I think that thinking about these things and talking about these things and talking about our differences and acknowledging our differences, this actually brings us closer together. So while that may sound counterintuitive that we're different and talking about those differences makes us close, we encourage you to sit with that. Because instead of assuming assimilation to one particular narrative, and as women, I think we have often been told that, you know, to compete with men, we need to act or be like them. We're going to discuss that about what Lean In had told us to do, you know, in a later episode as well. That has been, you know, the story told to women that we need to assimilate into the male narrative. But when we recognize that we are different. Right. And um, and different doesn't mean better or worse. Different just means different. Because I think anybody who has looked at a female or male body and then their brain is simply different. We have differences and it's okay to live within the strengths of those differences and and the truth of those differences. Sorry to interrupt, but... No, no, that's so powerful because we're not placing a judgment on those differences. And I think that's really important. But recognizing those differences and one of the ways that we, you know, really recognize that difference among women was equal payday. And we're going to get more into that as well. But recognizing those and learning and sharing with others and really giving people the space to be heard and the ability for us to listen means that we... It highlights that we really need each other to be the majority because we are numerically majority, but we need to unify to have a voice. And, you know, you and I, Sarah, really believe that education is an understanding the why behind things is, you know, really key to that. Totally. Totally. And I'm excited to talk. I mean, right now I'm just like, okay, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about that. I'm so (laughs) excited to jump into it because... We can make a difference, basically. But, you know, there's that question of, are we going to be able to get over ourselves enough to unite and to look past the differences and see where our commonalities are and stand up for ourselves and come together? So I feel like hopefully through conversation, which is our strength, we can keep up, you know, with the education and the research and share. Yeah, I think there's a great quote, and hopefully we can put this somewhere as well, that sort of sums up this concept. And it's from Audre Lorde, and it goes, those of us who stand outside the circle of this society's definition of acceptable women, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, 
know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to stand alone, unpopular, and sometimes reviled, and how to make common cause with those others identified as outside the structures in order to define and seek a world in which we can all flourish. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. Oh, I like it. Right? Yes. <laughs> I like it a lot. I feel like I could go off right now and talk a lot more, but I'm kind of like, okay. Because there's a video that we found and I know, you know, again, I can share that on the social media pages, but it talks about intersectional feminism. And I think it'd be really interesting to have people watch it in preparation for the next episode, which is intersectional feminism. And in the meanwhile, we'll share it via email and let us know what you think via email too. hello at dearwhitewomen.com. And the video is only like seven to eight minutes long. So it's short, but it's impactful. Cool. All right more next time. Let's continue to get uncomfortable together. Can't wait. 